Okay. This might be the last class we do on chapter seven. Let's see how it goes. What? No, no, no. Okay. So, we, what we've gone through is that at the end of the day, because things that are rooted in Klippa Snoga, the godliness in them is not bound to the Klippa. Even if a person brought the Klippa into the three impure Klippas by doing it in an indulgent way, whatever the thing was, it's not stuck there, right? And so at the end of the day, right, ultimately, whatever we do, as long as it's permitted, eventually gets a, a, transformed into holiness as it feeds into the mitzvahs that we do. The question is just, is that process a smooth and direct process in the case of doing things for the sake of heaven? Or is it a little bumpier when we do things just to take care of our own needs? Or is it actually a descent into the demonic realms of the three impure klipas that we have to rectify through tshuva um, by the case of indulgent behavior? But in the end of the day, it's all the it's all going to be transformed into holiness because nothing about the things that we're doing is intrinsically bound up with the side of evil. Right? The side that has no redeeming qualities. That's what we've learned up until now. Okay. So if you, we are on, uh, we got, it's Yud Bez, I guess it's the page without the numbers on it now. Yeah. On the left-hand column, the paragraph that says, such is not the case, which is the third paragraph. Such is not the case, however, with forbidden foods, which derive from the three klipas that are entirely unclean. These are tied and bound by the extraneous forces forever and not released until the day comes when death will be swallowed up forever, as is written, and I will cause the unclean spirit to pass from the land. So, if a person, God forbid, eats forbidden foods, right? Or for that matter, does a forbidden action. Since that thing gets its life force from the three impure clues which have no good in them, and that's intrinsic, it's inherent. It's not that because you had the wrong motivation brought it down to the lower level. It's intrinsically coming from the three impure klipas. It stays there forever until Hashem removes all evil from the universe, which means some part of the person has actually become contaminated with the three impure klipas and will stay that way forever. So that's a cheerful thought, right? Right? So, right? That, right, whatever, whatever we think or do or say or eat, especially eating, because it actually becomes part of you in a much more lasting way, that is forbidden, it doesn't matter what you do afterwards, that will stay always a contamination and impurity upon the soul forever. So that's an uplifting thought. Is that like, let's say someone, before they convert, they were eating unkosher food? Since they weren't Jewish before, is it, in a, it wasn't for, like, forbidden them, is it gonna like, taint their soul and That is a good question. We'll save that for chapter eight. Because right now we're focusing on where eating it was a sin. Where it was, right? In other words, that, and so what happens if you do something forbidden not knowing it was forbidden at all, we'll deal with it in chapter eight. That's a little bit different, okay? Now, that means that what we said previously about this idea that doing something because it's indulgent is the same as doing something that is forbidden. It's on the one hand true, and on the other hand it's not true at all. On the one hand it's true because at the moment that a person is doing something indulgent, lustful, the level of impurity in this, that affects the soul is the same as if it was forbidden, right? So in that sense it's identical. But since if a person is doing something in an indulgent way, it's, a, it's a, their mindset that, that created the problem. Their tshuva fixes the problem. Whereas if it's intrinsically from the three impure klipas, that's a permanent problem. There's, there's no way to fix that until the Mashiach comes and Hashem removes the klipa from the world. Right? So that would make sense why a person might want to put a lot more effort to make sure you don't eat things that are forbidden and do things that are forbidden and treat the things that are um, permitted but indulgent not as severely. Okay? Um, to give you an analogy of what this is like. Okay. 
There are some things in life that we can fix. Like if you had to fight with a friend, can you fix that? Yeah, yeah you can fix that. Okay. Then there's some things that you can't fix, right? Put me an example of something you can't fix. You kill if you kill somebody, right? So would it make sense to be more careful about killing someone than about getting to fight with your yeah. friend? Yes. And that's true. On the other hand, right, what kind of life do you live, what kind of relationships do you have when, the, when your standard for being concerned about a problem is when it's, there's no way to repair it? Like, well, as long as I haven't killed anybody, it's not a big deal, right? What kind of life are you going to live? What kind of relationships are you going to have? It's horrible, right? So it's true on the one hand to say that take, being concerned about sinning should be a bigger priority than be concerned about doing things in an indulgent manner. But on the other hand, if I buy into that way of thinking too much, right, then I've, then I've, then, then I've completely destroyed any ability to have a, a, a positive and healthy relationship with Hashem. Right? And this is in going with those examples in Chassidus where you need to have kind of two almost conflicting trains of thought simultaneously in your head. On the one hand, a sin is far worse than indulging because there's, it's, it's, the damage is irrevocable. On the other hand, right, indulging is just as bad as sinning in terms of its qualitative effect on my connection with Hashem. Okay. Now, um, should we tell this to children? No. Why not? Right, they don't have the maturity to deal with it. So why am I telling you? Because you're not children. That's right. Okay. Good? Yeah. Okay. Or, here's where it gets complicated. There is a way out of this problem. Until the sinner repents to such an extent that his premeditated sins become transmuted into veritable merits, which is achieved through the repentance out of love, coming from the depths of the heart, with great love and fervor and from a soul passionately desiring to cleave to Hashem, blessed be he, and thirsting for Hashem like a parched desert soil. So, you can actually get rid of the klipas of forbidden things by doing tshuva. But what kind of tshuva? A tshuva that is from the depths of the heart with great love and fervor. Okay. So, we have here is an idea that when one does tshuva, one can transform sins into merits. Um, yes. What's the Hebrew for repentance out of love? Tshuva ma'avarabah. By the Baal, yeah, let's see. The Hebrew he says is Quite intense. Okay, so what's the logic here? Okay. So first off, we need to understand something. Okay. How is it that something is transformed from klipa into kedusha. Generally, like, like even take something that's, that's not an aver, right? Person ate some food, and then they do a mitzvah, right? Kosher food. How does that thing become transformed into holiness? Okay. And so what I want to do is to explain that I want to differentiate between two things, okay? One thing is a dependency, okay? When something depends on something else, and the other is where something is part of something. Okay, those are not the same thing, okay? So, for example, okay? Does studying Torah, is eating part of studying Torah? Or does studying, or sorry, there's eating and studying Torah. When a person studies Torah, and they haven't eaten properly, that's going to affect their ability to study, right? Mm -hmm. So would we say that the eating is part of the study of Torah, or the eating is, um, or, the, or the study of Torah just depends on the eating? Depends. depends. Why would you say that? Why don't you say that? the eating doesn't contribute to the goal of learning. The eating doesn't contribute to the goal of learning. Why not? It does contribute. It does contribute. So why isn't it's it part of why shouldn't I think of Why shouldn't I think of learning as a much broader activity? It's not the learning. It's not the learning in itself. If you didn't have, if you ate, like if you just ate, you would be learning. 
Okay. When I was when I was a when I was a kid, my father made me wash dishes. What? I know. I know. Child abuse. So, after washing the dishes, my father would often call me back to the sink and say, part of washing the dishes is that when you're done, you have to make sure the sink is clean. You can't like leave all the dirty stuff in the sink. And you've got you know, the, the spongy thing has to be put away. Like, that's part of washing the dishes. Right? Because part of every job is the setup and the cleanup. That was a common refrain I heard from my father. Right? That when you, you're doing something, it means doing it means setting up the workspace to do it, doing the activity, and then cleaning up afterwards. That's part of doing it. Okay. Now, I mean, presumably washing the dishes, the dishes should be clean. Whether the sink gets dirty in the end is not my problem, right? So why would my father say that's part of washing the dishes? On the off chance my father knows what he's talking about, right? He's not just uh, making stuff up. What would be the logic there? I mean, it's not washing the dishes, right? Cleaning the sink is not washing the dishes. So why is it part of washing the dishes? It just makes sense. Okay, but that's not an explanation. Well, it wouldn't be fair to clean the dishes and then like, not to properly like, I don't know if it's really no, you're still cleaning the dishes. Even if, I clean the dishes. The dishes are all clean. Yeah, but always get told things like that. Like, and you can't bake unless you're cleaning after. Like, yeah, the cleaning is not part of baking. Is it? It's part of the process. Well, it depends on how you define the process. For instance, for instance, if we say that washing dishes is that the dishes should be clean, well then, Cleaning the sink up afterwards is not part of washing the dishes, really right? Means cleaning up after a meal. Right, but if washing the right, if washing the dishes means right, washing the dishes means returning, you know, a part of the kitchen back to like, you know, clean, usable space after having used it for a meal, right? Well, then it does make sense that like leaving the whole place filthy while the dishes are clean has kind of missed the point on some level, yeah. right? In other words, what's part of something and not what's part of something and what's just uh, dependency depends on how you really define the act, right? So if you define the act of cleaning the dishes that the dishes themselves should be clean and that's it, well then my father says it doesn't make a lot of sense. But if you think of it as the idea of cleaning up after the meal, right? And there's like different things about cleaning up. There's cleaning up the living room, the space where you ate, and there's cleaning up like the space where the food gets prepared, right? And so part of that means leaving the kitchen clean the way you found it. That would make sense. And that's what really we mean by washing up the dishes. So then, yeah, it does make sense as part of it, right? Okay. Yes, no? Yeah. Okay. So now, going back, what is studying Torah all about? Okay, like, more specifically. Like making a shame Which part which part of which part of which world? Part of our physical world? Part of our mental world? Studying towards about making shame part of our, no, our physical world? Like our mental world. Yeah. Right. So it's true if you don't eat, you can't study Torah very well, right? But that's because of a technical problem of a body, right? When you don't have a body, can you study Torah just fine no. without eating? No. Sure you can. If you don't have a body, you can't study Torah. Sure you can. In fact, you're more effective at it, by the way. Where, my malachim? Malachim, no, no souls. Souls are there? Yep, that's all they do in Ganadin, by the way. <coughs> Anyone teach them? God. Well, he's busy writing the world. He's never busy. It's kind of built into the definition of being God, as he's never preoccupied. So he's available? Yep. So, the, the, no, it. it to use like if I'm trying to talk to you do I need a cell phone not intrinsically I mean it happens to be if we're far away from each other I might need a phone right, right. but the, the phone is a way of dealing with a problem which is circumstantial which is distance but intrinsically communication doesn't need a phone right the intrinsically studying Torah doesn't need a brain souls study Torah just fine without a brain right in fact the brain just slows everything down now when your soul this world is a circumstance yeah well when that comes to Torah study right but if you talk about like the rest of the mitzvahs that have to be done physically, right? You can't exactly do physical mitzvahs if you don't have a body, right? Souls can't put on film light Shabbos candles or do any of those types of things, right? They can't say the words of Torah. They can understand Torah, but they can't say the words, right? So if we're talking about the idea of Torah mitzvahs being physical things that we do, right? 
right? So that means that it's about making our physical existence holy, right? Well, then the part, then everything about our physical existence that is part of maintaining the existence for the mitzvahs, as it, in some broad sense, can be incorporated into the mitzvah, right? So it can be said that if I eat kosher food and then I put on tefillin, or I eat kosher food um, and then say words of Torah, right, with my mouth and lungs, right? or I make money and then I give tzedakah, then since that whole process can't conceptually exist, unless I also have the eating and the making money part, then that's in some sense part of the mitzvah overall. We can think of the mitzvah in a broader sense, that the mitzvah incorporates not just the technical thing you're doing as a mitzvah, but even the preparations for the mitzvah. And there's a way of thinking about it like that. Okay? Um, but... So, so whenever we want to say is something just a dependency or is it part of the thing, we need to think about like how we can define the thing and then we say like how broad is it, what does it incorporate and what doesn't incorporate. So it's true that if I think about mitzvahs as physical, bringing Hashem into my physical life, then my physical life is part of the mitzvah, right? But if I think of, say, Torah study, well, Torah study is about bringing Hashem into my mental life, well, then my physical life is not really part of Torah study. Right? It could be that if my physical life isn't as it should be, it affects my mental life, and therefore I need to do something. Okay? Let's use a very technical example. Okay? If um, a person has to do a bris milah on Shabbos, are they allowed to do the bris milah on Shabbos? Yes. yes. The luck is that bris milah can be done even on Shabbos. In fact, it must be done. If the bris milah, if the eighth day falls on Shabbos, then it has to be done on Shabbos. Okay, what if there is no knife? Let's say. You would have, to, you would have that issue whether it's Shabbos or not. I know, but, oh, but, okay. there's, but you, you, um, during the weekday, there's no problem of like going to get a knife. But on Shabbos, you could have a problem of getting a knife. It might involve carrying, so making a knife, sharpening the knife, right? Is, it included in is that included in the mitzvah of bris milah? Yeah. And the answer is it's not. Because the mitzvah of bris milah, the mitzvah of bris milah, is not the way the it's a dispute, but the way the halacha, the way the halacha defines it is the mitzvah of bris milah doesn't include those things that you need to have in order to do the bris milah. The mitzvah. Sorry, that's like saying like, um, like, like, like I don't know, like lighting like candles. Yeah, candles. Yeah, candles. Like that's not part of the mitzvah. That's lighting the candle, not getting the candle. That's true. No, this actually becomes a very important. No, the, 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 this. This issue, this, this issue, because this is exactly the issue I want to get to, is that what's included in something, what's not included in something, require, it, it depends on how that thing is conceptually def defined. Right? So, for instance, building a sukkah is actually part of the mitzvah of sukkah. So much so there's a question why you don't make a bracha when you build the sukkah. So what happens if you don't have a knife? If you don't have a knife, uh, well, so... In the case of a mitzvah, you can have a non-Jew violate Shabbos for you. So you could have a non-Jew get the knife for you. But if there's no non-Jew available, then you can't do the bris meal. It's like, is building is part of the mitzvah? Is getting, getting materials is not? Getting materials is not. Right. Right. So, the, the, um, um, so in, in everything, in everything we want to, the, the, there's like a fence. And you think questions like, what goes into that fence? And... This gets in, this is an issue in, in, when you're talking about any type of thing and defining something, like what is actually included in that definition and what isn't, what's part of it and what's not part of it, even though it might actually be necessary, okay? So using, a, using another example, okay? Um, when people get married, okay, biblically speaking, so there's also rabbinic law and biblical law, right? Biblically speaking, what is included in a marriage? Like two people are married, so like, okay, now what? Like what, what, they got married. What's included in that? Oh, item, work. No, that, that's how it happens, but like, if I say Yaakov and Leah are now married, okay, so what does that mean? Leah can't be with another man. Leah can't be with another man, what else does it mean? That's kind of built into that. Yeah. Um, Leah can't be with another man. What else? Does it mean anything else? They need to follow the Lord. That's true whether you're married or not. Right. Um, okay. 
Right? That's just like, like, what does that mean? Like, okay, like, like th- there is this notion of Ruvain is married to, to Sarah, whatever. Okay, what, 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 what is it? What, what, is, what does that mean? They actually have to be. Do they have to love each other? No. Is that? No, they don't have to love each other. They legally have to get married to be married. Once they are married, whatever, whatever has to happen in order for them to be married, what does it mean that they're married? Like, what is the, what, what, what is the, what does that concept include? Is this what? That she can't live with that's, that's it? That's, that's it? I think that's it. No. no. Um, That'd be very one sided, you know. What? Be very one sided. Yeah. Like, technically, the Olaf is biblical. Yeah, according to, according to, according to the law, a biblical student for the rabbis get her. He has to provide her with what? I don't know. Exactly. Oh, just enough to right. like, shelter. Food? Food. Like, clothes. Clothes. Shelter. Food. In physical relations. That's oh. it. Because I was thinking it was like interesting because I was wondering if a man just study toward their whole lives and don't make an income. I was wondering like how they're fulfilling it too. But then we read about it. What was in food and not shelter? It's not with the Torah. Now the rabbis, the rabbis did, the rabbis did extend some more things to it. But the, 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 there's a con, right? everything you can ask, like what exactly are the criteria? What is the concept? What does it entail? What does it not entail? Right? Yeah. Um, the if you if you if you um, I'll give you another example. Yeah. Let's say you want to bring a sacrifice in the temple. Yeah. Okay. What is in, what what does that entail? Like, what does it mean to bring a sacrifice to the temple? Right. What do you what do you have to do? What do you not have to do? Right. The, all, those are always open questions, right? And so when we ask, when we ask, like, okay, well, what's this mitzvah? Okay, well, what is the mitzvah? Is the you know does the mitzvah include the 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 what seem to be preparatory steps? Is that actually part of this performance of this mitzvah, or is it not? So, for instance, matzah is making of the matzah part of the mitzvah of matzah? Yeah. Yes. Is the making of tefillin part of the mitzvah of wearing tefillin? No. Yes. Yeah. Which is why women can't make, because they're not because. So why they make They can't make matzah. Because men and women are equal. Yeah, women and men are equally obligated to eat matzah, right? So women can make matzah for men. Men can make matzah for women. But men are obligated to fill and women are not. So can women make tefillin? No. Okay, because part of the mitzvah. Okay. What? There's no mitzvah of wearing a kippah. We discussed that, right? Okay. So. Um, that's actually a problem. For wo- there's a whole discussion about what. So a woman can't tie the strings. The, the, the garment she can make no problem. There's a debate as to, this is an interesting thing is is how much of making the strings is actually part of the mitzvah. So tying the strings is for sure the mitzvah. Um, what about what about um, spinning the wool into th- into thread? Is that part of the mitzvah? It's a machlokas. Is there a way you know what's part of this stuff? You have to look for precedence in, in halacha. Yeah. But this is the issue. So what's part of the mitzvah? What's not part of the mitzvah, right? And then also the same thing. Something can be part of something in different senses, right? So for instance, I gave you a definition of marriage, right? Biblically speaking, what is marriage? Marriage means she's not allowed to be with another man. And he has to provide three things, right? And also removes any prohibition about the two of them being together on because of promiscuity. That's, right? But notice, that's all, that's the definition of marriage when we're talking about um, just um, the things that are enforceable by a court, right? If we, were, we could ask a different question, like what is marriage if we start thinking about it as a spiritual matter? What's the definition of marriage there? Or as an ethical matter, right? You know, even the definition of a thing, the criteria of what it entails is different depending on the context which you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Right? Does that make sense? Okay. So when we want to know is this just a, it depends on it or is it part of it, we need to really have an understanding of what the definition of that thing is. Okay, now, what we have here is this notion that if you do tshuva with enough, out of enough love, then what does that do to your sins? It turns them into merits. Okay. Why? What's the logic? So let's keep reading. For inasmuch as his soul has been in a barren wilderness and in the shadow of death, which is the sitrachah, and infinitely removed from the light of the divine countenance, his soul now thirsts for God even more than the souls of the righteous, as our sages say, in the place where penitents stand, not even the perfectly righteous can stand. And as concerning repentance out of such great love, they've said, the penitents' premeditated sins become, in his case, like virtues, 
since thereby he has attained this, attained this great love. How can you have the kind of love of desperately yearning for Hashem? Because you are far from Hashem. And so what the argument here is that the being far from Hashem is in some sense part of the tshuva. Okay? The idea being that if desiring Hashem with great intensity is holy, and desiring Hashem with great intensity includes being distant from Hashem, then the distance has become part of that holiness. And so the distance of the sin has now become transformed into the holiness of the tshuva. The distance of the sin, sorry, has now been transformed into the holiness of the tshuva. Okay. Now, what I would like to do is read one more paragraph because when we read the next paragraph, that'll put everything in context and we'll work backwards to understand the thing. However, repentance that does not come from such love, even though it be true repentance, that God will pardon him, nevertheless, his sins are not transformed into merits and they're not completely released from the cleave until the end of time when death will be swallowed up forever. Simply doing tshuva does not transform the sins. Okay, and now we have to understand why. So, for this we have to understand that there are different levels to tshuva. Okay? And as we go up the levels, we want to talk about how does tshuva relate to the sin. Okay? So what is the minimal level of tshuva? Like the barest minimal that below this can't be considered tshuva at all. Regret. No. You don't need to regret to do tshuva. Regret is okay. not necessary. What you did wrong. Nope. I don't know. What is the bare minimum needed for something to count as tshuva? Feeling bad. Just say sorry. Nope. The desire to repent? Nope. Well, let's see stop stop sinning. That's it. What? That's the hardest one. Nope. No, no. no, if you're real sin, you stop. No, I feel bad, but I don't stop. Well, that's not tshuva. The bare minimum of tshuva is that you decide to stop sinning. That's the hardest one. But that's tshuva. That's all you're doing. It's like not like forever. No? No, forever. I don't know. Oh, but then you might... Right, so let's go there. The, the, basic, the basic, basic notion of tshuva is? Is decide to stop sinning. Can you represent? This would not have tshuva. I say you eat kosher food. Yeah. I say I'm not eating kosher. Like I stop eating kosher. I'm not doing that anymore. But then I like have in mind I'm going to eat kosher food maybe sometime in the future. Yeah, that's called lying to yourself. Well, you're not, what you're saying that you're happy. That's called lying to yourself, right? It's like, I mean, I'm not going to eat non-kosher food, but I'm perfectly intending to later on eat non-kosher food. It's right. Doing tshuva means the decision not to sin anymore. Okay? doesn't involve regret. It doesn't involve feeling sorry. It doesn't involve loving Hashem. It involves a decision about your future behavior. That from now on, if God says no, then no means no. If God says I have to do it, then I'm going to do it. God would say no like that. That's that's true. Okay. Now. Okay. If you do that, if you do that, what happens? Okay? Right now you didn't no regret, no no confess, no nothing. Just all you did is you decided that from now on, if God said I'm not allowed to do it, I'm not doing it. If God said I have to do it, I'm gonna make sure to do it. No. Well, no. You stop building a dream. Yeah, we just did a sin. Right? Yeah. So what? 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 What, what is? What? Is, okay. So what we do is we need. What we need to do is we need to differentiate between the person and the sin. Okay. If a person sins, okay. There are two effects on the person because of the sin. Okay. Number one, they deserve to be punished. Okay. If a person sins, they are what is known as guilty. And what happens to people who are guilty? They get punished. Okay. Okay. Number two, okay. By sinning, Okay, they have damaged their soul and the source of their soul above. One second. Okay, this has nothing to do. This has nothing to do with the sin itself. 
What does that mean? Okay. The source of soul above. The source of soul above. Is every soul has a source. Okay? And when we do something, whether good or bad, it's like a rope. If you shake a rope on one end, what happens to the other end? It also moves. Mm -hmm. So how does what we do affect Hashem? Because every one of our souls has a source. And so when we do something, it doesn't just affect us. It also affects that part of where our soul is connected to Hashem, which is called the source of the soul. That make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. So now, if a person has sinned, okay, they have done two things to themselves and the source of their soul. One, they've made themselves guilty, deserving of punishment. And two, they have damaged their soul. Okay? I'm going to use an example in a moment, okay? They're guilty. They're guilty, which means they deserve to be punished. And two, they've damaged their soul. Okay? This is separate from the actual evil of the sin. Okay? So let me give you an example. If somebody murders somebody, okay? There are three things here. Just very simply, three things. Number one, the person did something wrong and therefore they deserve to be punished. Number two, they damage their soul. They damage their soul. And number three, three, the victim is dead. (laughs) Right? Yeah? Yeah, Okay, now let's say we solve the first two problems. Did the third problem get solved? No. The The guy's dead, he's still dead, right? (laughs) Okay? So there is the objective reality of the sin. Right? And the evil in that sin and its place in the world, that's one issue. And then there is the status of the sinner, which is a separate issue. Okay, In as much as we're talking about the sinner themselves, there's two things. There's the fact that by sinning, you're guilty and deserve to be punished. And two, you've damaged your soul. So that to death die has nothing to do with the sinner. Right. I mean, for instance, you, I mean, could, you could kill sure. somebody and, like, let's say you killed somebody and you wasn't a sin. That could happen, right? Right, so I want, that's all, I want you to differentiate between two different things. Right, but I'm saying they can't be so separate. They can be. They can be. Sure. Like, what happens if somebody kills somebody completely unintentionally? They might be entirely, they may not be a sin at all. They might not be guilty of anything. They might not have damaged their soul, but the other guy's still dead. Right? No, not necessarily. That's only under certain circumstances. Not every time where a person kills somebody. Air Miklat is because there is some element of sin there. But there's, yeah. Yeah, basically. That's a simple explanation. No, there's discussions. Not every time someone kills somebody. Okay, yeah. So, okay. So, now, what? What happens? So here's the rule. What happens? Let's say this. So somebody eats a cheeseburger. Okay, let's run through. Someone eats a cheeseburger. Number one, because they they eat they ate the cheeseburger. God said not do it. They did it. That makes them guilty, and they deserve punishment. punishment. Number two, damage they've damaged their soul. Right. Number three, nothing happens to the cheeseburger. Nothing. Number three. Right? Number three is that there's more evil in the world and actually inside of them because of the cheeseburger. There's more evil in the world. Yep. Inside of them and the world. Yes. You don't have to believe it. I mean, people cannot believe things. It doesn't change whether they're true or not. It's funny how human belief generally does not change the nature of reality. What's the impact of the evil? What's the impact of the evil? So let's say, for instance, that um, I mean, let's say, for instance, that a person um, ate a cheeseburger, and let's say they did shuva, okay, and all the issues uh, that means that, and let's say Hashem has forgiven them and their soul has been cleansed of whatever, but the evil is still there. Yeah. And twenty years later, they're sitting in shul, and they're trying to daven. And they have this thought that pops into their mind, which is like completely not related to davening at all, that keeps distracting them. Yeah, because they have a cheeseburger. And where is that thought coming from? It's coming from the evil in the cheeseburger. No, I don't. That's still present. 
Yeah. The evil that's in themselves or the evil that's in the world? Well, there's a part of your, so remember, we have to think of the dividing line. This is a very good question. We have to think of the dividing line between yourself and the world as between your godly soul versus the human body and animal soul. Oh, there's, right? no, there's nothing different between your physical right. body. And so your physical body is part of the world, right? So if you eat the cheeseburger, the cheeseburger stays, you know, the, the, the cleap of the cheeseburger stays inside your body, which means it's part of the world at large, and it also is going to have a strong effect on you, yeah? And that means 20 years down the road, you're like in the middle of davening on Rosh Hashanah or something, and all of a sudden you start thinking about something, you're like, why am I thinking about this? It has nothing to do with davening, right? And it won't leave you alone. You're like, where is this klipa coming from? And the answer is not coming from somewhere else. It's coming from the cheeseburger that you ate 20 years ago. Wait, unless you did the chuvah Well, we're going to get to the chuvah Before we get to the chuvah. So what happens if a person does chuva on a basic level? Okay. After they sin? Yeah, they sin. Okay, And as a result of sinning, there's... <laughs> There's the effect on, the, on reality of the sin itself, and there's the effect on their soul, right? On, in terms of their soul, there's two things. Should I, should I draw this as a chart? Am I confusing everybody? Or is it? I'm good. But, okay. So, one is that the person is guilty, and two is that their soul, the source of their soul, has been damaged, right? Okay. Now, what happens when you do tshuva? And what does tshuva mean, technically? Stopping to sin. Well, it's, not it's actually a decision to stop sinning. Oh, it's a decision? Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. And like, it's really like if you're not sinning because like, the cheeseburger is finished, it's like, <laughs> that doesn't, that's not tshuva. You have to decide to stop sinning. And like you have to keep it? Well, that makes a decision, right? Telling yourself you're... Talk about that. We said that you don't have to keep it. One second. You do have to keep it. You have to intend completely no, to keep it. No, you intend to, then you don't have to, it's fine. That's later, but right now I'm keeping it. You then you're not doing chuva anymore, right? You have to really believe it. The chuva lasts as long as it lasts, well, right? Well, always I'm going to know that I might know. Well, then you have no chuva. You have to fully believe that you have to fully. You have to fully intend. You have to decide that you're not doing it anymore and do your utmost to keep that. Yeah, that's true. I have a question. One second. One second. What happens, the question I want to know is what happens when you do chuva? Okay, I'll let you ask your question a second. Two things. Number one, God forgives you. When you have the decision to stop sinning? That's right, God People forgives you. you immediately. But God and forgives you. What does that mean? What means you're not going to get punished. Okay. One second. I mean, he doesn't forgive you so much because you're still One second. issues. One second. God forgives you, which means he's not going to punish you. Really? But then, okay. no, he would be punished in the world and people are punished. No, because most people don't stop sin. Number one, God is. Number one, God forgives you, forgives you, which means you're not going to punish Number two, right? Hashem is now willing to consider fixing the the soul and the source of the soul, which is called atonement. Okay? Well, I'm going to explain how this works. Okay? Okay. So. Um, we le I learned once about when you do an Avera, that there's like a whole leaking process. So, um, that doesn't stop, right? Because you did chuva. No. Yeah. No. So there's still a greater hole and more klipa able to attach that. Yeah, all that stuff still, that's where you need the fixing of the soul. The soul is still battered and injured and stuff. Okay, so the rule is like this. If what the sin is that God told you to do a mitzvah and you didn't do the mitzvah, then God forgives you right away and moves on because your soul doesn't actually get damaged that way. So let's say um, you don't make a bracha. You eat without making a bracha. And then you're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. You know what? I'm, I'm go not going to do that anymore. I'm going to make sure to make brachas from now on. What happens at that point? God forgives you, moves on. There's, there's, okay. What happens, though, if it is a negative sin? Right? Then that actually damages the soul. And um, assuming you get to Yom Kippur and you're still holding by your tshuva, 
that on Yom Kippur, Hashem will clean up your soul and fix it for you. For your if you're not doing a sin, but it doesn't damage your soul. It doesn't damage your soul. So the rule is like this. If, it's a, if you neglect to do a positive mitzvah, it doesn't damage the soul. Okay. If you is it trans- not a sin to not say a bracha, or is it a sin? It is. Yeah. There's sins of commission and sins of omission. We're talking mainly about sins of... So I'm, I'm, I'm talking about both. I want you. So number one, if Hashem tells you to do something and you don't do it, or not to do something and you do do it, either way, that's considered sinning, and it makes you guilty and deserving of punishment. When you do, tshuva means that you decide you're not doing that anymore, right? What if it's for one minute? I have an idea. Why don't I finish the whole idea instead of all the what ifs? And then once they, okay. then we can ask the what ifs. Because we're not getting through a whole train of thought. Because literally I can't get through one sentence before someone has a question. Okay. Okay. There's a positive things and there's negative things. If a person doesn't do the thing that Shem tells them to do, or transgress the thing that Shem tells them not to do, that is considered a sin, and the person is guilty and deserving of punishment. If they did something they should not do, it also damages their soul. Okay? If it was just a positive mitzvah and they do tshuva, which in tshuva means deciding that you're not doing that ever again, in this case you're going to do the mitzvah from now on, then Hashem forgives you. So which means if Hashem is forgiving you, do you deserve punishment? No. No. Okay? Um... What if, what about, the, what about the damage to the soul? Well, if it's a positive mitzvah that a person neglected you, there's no damage to the soul. So there's nothing to worry about there. And if it's a negative mitzvah, there is damage to their soul. When does Hashem fix the damage to the soul? By Yom Kippur. By Yom Kippur. Now, what happens if by the time you get to Yom Kippur, you're not holding by the tshuva anymore? Then does your soul get fixed up on Yom Kippur? No. No. Meaning you've been ha- you have to say a bracha every single time sin. Oh no, because that's not damage your soul. It means it's a good idea to do tshuva right before Yom Kippur in case you did tshuva oh. for a sin and then like slaps in between then and Yom Kippur because, right, hence the uh, cus- Jewish custom of like doing tshuva right before Yom Kippur. Okay. Yeah. And then Yom Kippur, Hashem comes and fixes your soul and the root of the soul above. That's what Yom Kippur means. It means the day of cleansing. Comes um, are you cleanse. able to fix the soul before Yom Kippur if it's a negative mitzvah? Generally speaking, not. I will get to that soon, but generally speaking, not. Okay? Now, there is a certain exception, which is, what if the sin was a severe sin? Severe sins are sins that involve um, the death penalty or the soul being cut off from God. They're very, very severe sins. These would be not like eating cheeseburgers. These would be like um, forbidden relationships, Shabbos violation, eating on Yom Kippur, eating chametz on Pesach, those kinds of things. Idolatry, murder. Which would go into the category of something that would, you would get caught from the Jewish nation or what else do you say? Death penalty. In that case, then the cleansing of your soul and fixing it up involves suffering, not just Yom Kippur. It means hopefully, because suffering in this world is much better than suffering in the but world how to come. Do we know we're suffering? Have you sinned? Yeah. So assume that. Till proven otherwise. Then I'm gonna feel like every bad thing that happens is because of And why is that a bad thing? Because then you feel like a terrible person. But remember, Hashem only causes you to suffer in this world if He's forgiven you and wants to cleanse your sins. So that means that Hashem loves you. Because if you're not suffering for your sins in this world, that means that Hashem is holding out to be really vindictive when it's going to really hurt. You have to have context for things, right? If, if, if Hashem brings suffering in this world to cleanse you of your sins, that means mean that Hashem and has accepted your tshuva, has forgiven you, and wants to cleanse you, and wants to do it in the way that's least painful, and since the body is generally a dulling thing on the soul, if the cleansing happens when you're in a body, it is much less painful. But when we're not happy. So be happy about it. And that's the truth. We are suffering. So what does that have to do with anything? There's two kinds of suffering. There's two kinds of suffering. There's mental suffering and there's physical suffering. Those are not the same thing, right? Okay. If you stub your toe, it hurts, right? Mm But if you realize that stubbing your toe is good for you, right? Well, I mean, like when you're exercising and you know that's good for you, it's also not the most pleasant experience in the world always, but you're not, it doesn't involve mental anguish. 
So if you know that the reason why you're going through something painful is because that painful thing is good for you, right? So then you're not mentally suffering. And what if someone close to you passes away? Well, that's that's a different. That so so right now I'm talking about you. You talk. So what's about, mental suffering? Mental suffering means that, in other words. There's two things. If someone close to you passes away, there's the fact that they're gone, right? Mm-hmm. Which is about them, right? And there's the fact that you, they're not part of your life anymore, which is about you, right? Now, someone not being part of your life can happen in many, many ways, right? right. So, right, you're, and, and, and the fact that someone passes away might not have anything to do with, 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 with the fact that you know, people's lives end for any number of reasons. Somebody, you know, Hashem gave them a certain amount of time and that time is up and you miss them, okay? But that's not mean that Hashem is doing that in order to cause you suffering. Causing you suffering. No. He knows we're going to suffer. Not every, listen, not every single thing that, that you find unpleasant is, being, is for this purpose. And as a general rule, the death of other people, the death of other people is not a punishment for your sins. It's not, it's not, it's nothing to do with your sins. Punishment or cleansing for your sins. It's things that happen to you, such as not having as much money as you would like, physical ailments, losing you know positions of prominence. What? What? No, having as much money to cap is. Yeah, like yeah. So, losing somebody close to you, you wouldn't say is that? And what about mental illness? Mental illness? I mean, is, physical illness? Physical illness could be this, yeah. A person could go through physical illness as a way of cleansing. You can, you can say, say all this stuff you want to say about for yourself because you don't know what the other person's holding. You don't know what the other person's right? And mental illness? Um, I would say it depends on the nature of the mental illness because the general idea that, that suffering cleanses has a lot to do with how you accept the suffering. So if the kind of mental illness is the kind that leaves your ability to process reality intact, then maybe. But if it's the kind that doesn't, then no. Like, um, like maybe something like a something like a, um, a phobia or something like that, maybe. But like something like schizophrenia, my inclination would say not because something that something that there's no uh, the, re- the, 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 the the suffering cleanses when a person accepts the suffering. I can't take the person, let's say the parent of the child who has that mental illness, isn't isn't that a suffering because of something that he did in the past? No, not necessarily. No, generally speaking, no. Uh, you can't really excuse why things happen. I'm not trying to excuse why things happen. No, 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 you can't. No, no. This is just a, if if you know you've done stuff wrong and that your soul needs cleansing, and then you know you like lose money or you know so you break your money. leg or you break your leg or things like that, you should, be, you, you, you should be you should be you should be quite pleased with that because. This is not, it won't be clear, not everything in life has to do with reward and punishment. It's a separate, I'm not, not going to turn the conversation into about why people suffer. What I am talking about is the soul getting cleansed, the soul getting fixed up from the effect of the sin. And that, in certain severe sins, can involve suffering. Now, if it is a sin that involves the public desecration of God's name, then the only way to cleanse the soul is to be die, is to die. Like, um, like a rabbi that molests children, kind of thing. Their soul never gets fully cleansed until they're dead. Until they're dead. That if the sin is not just um, the sin itself, but also involves the public desecration of Hashem, then um, that's more severe. So if it's a severe sin and you suffer as a result to cleanse the soul, does anything ever happen during that sin? Yeah, yeah. It's cumulative. You need Yom Kippur and the suffering go together. And the suffering, let's say I did a sin now. And you don't do a sin now. So you did a sin in the past. And you have no more control over it. this year, but after. Yeah. Would, that, would I suffer this year and then become the Yom Kippur? Could I it's the other way around. First Yom Kippur and then cleanse. Yeah. Okay. Here's the, th- here's the thing that I want, I want, I want to emphasize in this. The, 
the cleanse, the, the being forgiven from punishment and the cleansing from the sin does not depend on how bad you feel. It doesn't depend on why you did tshuva. What does it depend on? Whether you, whether you did tshuva. And what is tshuva? The decision not to sin anymore. Now, it is true that um, if you do tshuva for loftier motivations, right, then Hashem might do the cleansing in a, in a nicer way. In fact, there is a possibility the cleansing doesn't even have to take the form of suffering if tshuva is done out of love. There is an idea that when a person does tshuva out of love, it, Hashem can erase this sin as if it never happened. So not that he can fix the damage to the soul, but when the tshuva is, when the tshuva is done out of love, Hashem actually erases it as if it never happened. So it's not like he forgives you for what you've done and it'll fix the problem, but rather, kind of retroactively in the past, it's as if it never occurred. Okay. So, but all of this has to do with the effect of, of, of the sin on the person. It doesn't have to do with the actual reality of the sin. The reality of the sin is not being changed by this at all. Going back to the example of like the, if God forbid someone murdered somebody, the dead person is still dead. Right? And spiritually speaking, the cheeseburger has still been eaten and all of the impurities of that has been imparted into the person's body and that's just the way it is. Okay? And that's what the altar was saying is that if a person does repentance even out of love, even out of love, it doesn't mean that the klipa has been removed. It means that the person doesn't deserve to be punished and it could even mean that the soul has been healed from the damage from the sin, but the sin as part of reality is still there. Okay? And what we're dealing with in this chapter is that fact, that that sin is still part of reality, that hasn't gone away. Okay? Now, there are higher and higher levels of tshuva in many respects. One of the respects of the tshuva is how lasting the tshuva is, right? Because we all know you can make a decision that lasts a day and a decision that, that is transformed and lasts a lifetime, right? There's also what motivates you to do the tshuva. That's a different thing than the strength of the decision. Are you doing tshuva because you don't want God to punish you? Are you doing tshuva because you um, know that what you did is wrong and you don't like feeling guilty? Right? Are you doing tshuva because you want to be close to Hashem? What's the best one? The best one is that you want to be close to Hashem. And this sin separates you, and so that bothers you, and so you don't want to do sins anymore. Okay? There are different kinds of tshuva. Okay? But the thing is, at the end of the day, all of those things, all of those things your person's doing tshuva, the, the sin kind of stays outside the realm of the tshuva. In other words, if I don't want to get punished, so I know I should stop sinning because otherwise God's going to punish me, so like from now on I'm going to do what Hashem says, okay, then... That has to do with me and my attitude towards the fact that Hashem is more powerful than me. Something to do with the actual sin itself. If I do tshuva because um, I want to be close to Hashem, and I realize that sin separates me, so if I don't want to sin anymore, okay, that's very nice, but it's nothing to do with the sin. Uh, the sin always is almost always outside of the tshuva, which means, in a certain sense, you don't do tshuva for sin. Like that's not really that's, that's not really the right way to think about it. The tshuva is about you and Hashem. So it's like this: Hashem can hurt you much more than anybody else, right? So is it a good idea to disobey Him? No. So if you care about yourself and be good to decide from now on to do what He says, yeah. okay, that's kind of tshuva, right? Hashem can make your life both in this world and the world to come wonderful, right? in a way that nobody else can, right? It would be a good idea to be on his good side? Yeah. Is that a reason to listen to him? Yes. Yeah. It is. It's a reason. It's not the best reason. It's, it is a reason. But who actually lives like that? There are plenty of people who live like that. That's more having fear. Fine. I don't care. We'll call it what you will, but it's a reason to do tshuva. Let's say you really value your relationship with Hashem and sins create distance in that relationship. Is that a reason to do tshuva and not to sin anymore? Yeah. Right? Sins hurt Hashem. And you love him, and you don't want him to they be hurt. hurt him. Yes, they hurt him. Because they, the they hurt the source of their soul. Is that a reason not to sin anymore? Yeah. Yeah. But you notice that all these things have nothing to do with the sin. They have to do with you and something about Hashem. Right? So if you, if you think about you, vis-a-vis Hashem, you come to some realization that you should make a decision 
not to sin anymore. That's true. Sins hurt us? Yes. That makes sense? So is the sin actually part of the tshuva? No. no. Now, obviously, why do you need to do tshuva? It usually has to do because you sinned, right? If you didn't sin, you wouldn't need to do tshuva. But the tshuva is kind of stands independently of the sin. Yeah. Right? Okay. Let, let, let me put it to you in other words, yeah? What's the difference between someone who never did tshuva and someone who did tshuva? In terms of relationship with Hashem. So I've got two people. We'll call them, you know, Reuven and Shimon. Reuven is doing everything Hashem says because he doesn't want Hashem to hurt him. He knows that Hashem is really powerful. He doesn't want Hashem to hurt him. And Shimon used to sin, realized that Hashem is really powerful and Hashem could hurt him and decided that he should listen to Hashem from now on. And now he's doing everything Hashem said because he doesn't want Hashem to hurt him. Is there really a difference now between Reuven and Shimon? No. It happens to be one came to that realization after having sinned and so it counts as tshuva. Another one had that realization the whole time. But I thought Hashem treasures tshuva. Maybe. But is there a difference in how they're relating to Hashem? No. Or what about somebody who doesn't want to sin because they don't want to create any separation between them and Hashem. They love Hashem so much. Another person who used to sin realized that they love Hashem and don't want that separation decided they're not going to, they're not going to sin anymore. Now, is there any difference between them? No. Because really, if you think about it, tshuva is not about the sin. Tshuva is about you vis-a-vis Hashem, and then because of that, you make a decision not to sin. And so technically, you wouldn't need to make a decision not to sin if you had never been sinning to begin with, but the real essence of the tshuva has nothing to do with the sin at all. Sin is kind of outside the tshuva. And what the tshuva does is it makes you no longer guilty in Hashem's eyes, and it actually makes you worthy of having your soul cleansed from the effect of the sin. But the sin is like a separate issue. It's, it's, and it stays and it exists. And it will continue to haunt you. Because has that klipa been removed from the world because you did tshuva? No. Are you held responsible for the sin? No, because Hashem forgave you, right? Has your soul been repaired? Sure, your soul's been repaired. But the klipa's still there. Okay. When is the people leaving? When Mashiach comes. Or if you do this special tshuva that he speaks about with tremendous love, then somehow something changes. And the idea there is that there's a kind of love you can only feel if you have been distant. There's a kind of love for Hashem that you can only have if you've been separated from Hashem. And if that's the kind of tshuva you have, then the distance of the Avera, the distance of the sin, is actually part of the tshuva. Okay? okay. So what the altar is saying is like this. Normally, does tshuva get rid of the klipa of the sin? Yes or no? No. No. What does the tshuva do? It affects your standing vis-a-vis Hashem, which number one means he won't punish you, and number two, he will clean your soul for you, which is nice, even if it might be painful, Right? And if you do tshuva out of love, he might not even clean yourself for you. He might like retroactively uproot the, the, the effect of him happening in the first place, which is a you know, transcending time or whatever. But the actual sin, the actual klipa, that's not affected by your tshuva. It's not part of your tshuva. It exists outside the tshuva. The only thing that tshuva affects is your standing vis-a-vis Hashem. The one exception to that is if the way you are doing tshuva, the way you're returning to Hashem, the emotions that are driving it are the kind of emotions you could only feel in connection with having sinned. Which means a love for Hashem that's greater than a love you could have felt if you had never sinned to begin with. And that's, called the, that's what he's describing here. So if a person <coughs> develops a love for Hashem that is more intense than they could have ever have felt had they never sinned, and that's what drives them to do tshuva, then the distance of the sin has become part of the tshuva, and once it's part of the tshuva, it's become holy. And this love can't happen through contemplation of Hashem's greatness? That's right. It can't? It cannot. This love is not accessible to anybody who has never this sinned. This is Hashem choosing to reach out for you to have a love. I didn't follow. No, it's because we're so distant. It's because you're distant. This is not Hashem reaching out and putting. No. This the, the analogy is like being thirsty. Have you ever been thirsty? 
Yeah, but one second. This is not like like a pentelid. No, it's not a pentelid. I mean, it, it, it's it's. Stavum satyrus. No. This is this is being thirsty for Hashem. And you can only be thirsty if you don't have water. Have you ever been thirsty? Yeah. Like really thirsty? Like in the middle of the desert without any water? Right? That the only thing you can think about is water? Have you ever had that kind of thirst? Yeah, you're backpacking. You're backpacking. Right? You gotta you have to be really distant from water. You can get to the point where the literally only thing that your mind can focus on is getting water. Are you but you're so far, your only mind is focusing is on learning Torah. No, I mean, not on Torah. There's a there's a, when a person realizes how distant they really are from Hashem through their sin, that it brings out in them something that they they obsess over Hashem with an intensity and a thirst and a yearning. Second. What? That happens like in a minute. Can, uh, when it, when it's triggered, it can be in a second. Yeah. Oh, but it, that, that's what I wanted to know. It has to be triggered, right? It has to have Hashem reaching down a little bit. No. It's triggered by the sin. The sinning is part of it. If you don't sin, you don't get that. Nobody, in other words, the, the, uh, you can never be thirsty if you have water in your backpack, basically. No matter how thirsty, if you're, it, like, there's a level where you're thirsty, but you have water and you're conserving your water, so you're not really thirsty. There's a level of thirst that can only happen when you have no more water and there's no water for miles around and it's been hours and it's hot and it's one day and then the second day and there's no water. It's a parched desert soil, right? Then the, the level of intense obsession with water reaches a level that regular human beings cannot fathom unless they've experienced it. Myself included, I've never experienced this, but there's a video of somebody. It's not the same thing with water, but it's, 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 it's a... It's a similar thing. There was a guy who was like hiking or doing some crazy types of things. Where he was like, you know, going out in the wilderness without supplies. And um, I don't know all the details, but basically he had buried like some candy bars or something on the way out on his trek for on the way back. And like he apparently like ran out of food and stuff on his way out. And but he remembered that somewhere on the way back there's like he had food buried in candy bars. And there's like a video of him like getting to a spot and digging it out, and like <laughs> you can see that he, he he goes into this like almost like state that's like halfway between being catatonic and like having a, a seizure in terms of like just the amount of ecstasy he's experiencing at like discovering a few candy bars because he was so desperate for food. Um, like there's a kind of intense yearning and desperation that you can only have when you're deprived of something. And so if that's what's motivating the tshuva, if the reason why you're not going to sin is because you feel deprived of Hashem by your own sins, then that feeling of deprivation, which is part of, which is the distance of the sitrafa itself has become part of the tshuva, and that's the only thing that can transform the sin into something holy. And this comes from yourself. And this comes from yourself. And this is something that even a perfect tzaddik cannot experience. A real bal tshuva. Which is rare. You, I mean, I want you. Like, do you realize how hard this is to achieve? Right. This is not like. This is not like. <laughs> what, what do you mean by real culture? Like somebody who's returning to God is because they were distant. Most people we nowadays call balichuva are people that are like getting a late education. Oh, I see. Yeah. So. They, like they weren't like completely like they were spending their life sinning. Right, There's not, like, there wasn't a lot of sinning. There was just, they didn't know any better. That's not really this. But like, this is someone who like, like a little bit is going against Hashem? This is, one of the, like, like a person who experience, goes through this and experiences a total breakdown of their entire sense of self. Um, there are people like there are people like this. Could it be like, what's this one was raised and like, just like, completely went off and then had a breakdown on my back? That could be. Um, but the, 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 the thing here is like this is not like, you can't like sin and then say, well, then I'll do tshuva. Like that won't work. Elizabeth ben Dardai would be an example of this. Ruben Dunin might be an example of this. But one of the things that these people, the person that goes through it's this. very rare. It's not just that it's rare. Does a person feel like, oh, now I'm doing tshuva out of this intense love and they feel so great with themselves? 
Like you, 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 there's a level of, there's a level of, of um, this is a little bit harsh, but, uh, but it'll, it'll illustrate the point, okay? God forbid somebody like's child passes away. It's like a very horrific thing, right? Yeah. And they miss them terribly, right? Yeah. How do you think a parent feels if they left the child in the car and then they died from the heat? Right. That that the the, the sense of the sense of yearning for their child and feeling it is on a whole different league, right? Because it's not just like the child passed away. It's like you did it, like. And, and like, like, how do you even live with yourself? And there's this, this, this level of consuming intensity, right? Yeah. And so the thing is, like, if a person realizes they, they abandoned Hashem, they, they threw Hashem in the garbage, right? And now they want him back and he's gone, right? That sense of yearning and that sense of desperation, that sense of being consumed with you, right? To the point that it, it, it takes over every part of your being, then the distance becomes part of the tshuva, right? But normally, this, the, the sin is not part of the truth. The truth is a separate thing. You, you, you understand who you are relative to Hashem on any number of levels, and then for you to decide not to sin anymore, which is a great, wonderful thing, and you're not going to get punished and all that stuff, but it doesn't transform the actual reality of the sin. Good? All right. We are done. Next, tomorrow we will start Chapter 8. I'd like to finish Chapter 8 before the break. That's my goal.